I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and thanks for downloading the first series of Joining the Dots. Joining the Dots is a podcast from the makers of Huck Magazine, brought to you in association with Size. To finish up the first series of Joining the Dots, we're presenting for you today a very special two-part episode. This finale of the first series features long-term friend of ours and collaborator of Huck magazine, photographer Guy Martin. Guy's been part of the Huck creative family since the very beginning. And in this episode, the Cornwall-raised lensman tells us how he started his career chasing waves and documenting beach culture around the world, and how this unexpectedly prepared him for a very different second act. Our host, Don Letts, sat down with him at the bottom of his West London garden to discover and explore the young photographer's motivations for covering war. I had come to the the Huck offices in East London, I think not long after kind of graduating or doing a couple of things, kind of with a portfolio that was so not Huck then, which was kind of like surfers, skaters, real more sportsy type thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was just like, I had a portfolio of images from like, that was just my documentary work from that uh, from the early kind of stuff. Like I went to Iraq when I was like 21, 22, and then covered the brief little summer war between Russia and Georgia and I kind of went to Vince and Rob and was like I shouldn't be here but like I'm just going to show you this anyway and see if it you know and then you it, found out Huck was actually a really hip magazine that could that you could yeah exactly yeah, yeah. and the, but I knew it was cool anyway like yeah. I wanted to like I because I used to be a surfer so I kind of know that and that scene and growing up in the southwest as well and traveled the world before photography really took over on my own, just surfing, trying to surf big waves and all that kind of stuff. So Huck was on my radar anyway. You would describe yourself as a photojournalist or a photographer? I would describe myself as a photographer. And I think there's, we'll maybe get onto it, but I think there's several problems in 21st century, in 2017, with that term photojournalist, because I think it applies, implies, or it's loaded, and perhaps might mistakenly kind of confuse that with notions of truth-telling or objectivity, or the truth, which I think are problem areas. Certainly in the to, 21st yeah, century. in the 21st century to think about. So I would describe myself as a photographer. And that, in that sense, that kind of, I hope, kind of um, allows more in. And I think that there are kind of things that maybe there were problems with even describing myself that or thinking that I was that photojournalist before growing up going into photography that that might have led. What drew you to photography in the first place? Um, 
Well, I don't know. I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm from Cornwall, from the, from the West Country, and I grew up there, and I'm really, you know, really happy to grow up there by the ocean. So I, I kind of was involved in the ocean, in the water, on the water. Um, my uncles were, were oyster fishermen, dredgers, scallop fishermen. Dad was a deep-sea diver. My granddad was a deep-sea diver. My granddad on my dad's side, on my mum's side, worked in the docks. Um, and so there was a affiliation with the ocean and with with all of the kind of, um, I don't know, metaphors that that brings with it. And I never kind of went down that path, but the ocean for me represented kind of uh, my, um, my way into like surfing. And through surfing and being around that and competing, I kind of used to surf and represent um, for kind of Great Britain in the surfing games. And I was kind of mad, mad, mad into it. Like I was, I am, I am still mad into it, I still do it. I know a lot about surfing now. I, right, exactly. I bet you do. Yeah, yeah. And that was my thing. So I like my way in or out of, should I say, out of Cornwall, out of kind of small town inertia was through the ocean and through traveling. And like I said before, like spending up, saving, working shitty jobs, saving up to go on a surf trip, taking yourself off to an Indonesian island, taking yourself off to Oaxaca in Mexico, so, like searching on your own for waves and challenging environments. And, and I think that somewhere along the line, there's a thing that kind of happens where you're either you're completely kind of enamored with that kind of glossy chicks in bikinis, surfing, active photography, water photography, technical kind of get carried away with what cameras you're using and action sports, sunsets, weather, like that never did it for me. I kind of wanted to do it, but it never moved me. And I remember being moved for the first time by an image or photography when I was like 16 or 17 that was by a, by a, uh, I'm sure a lot of people say this, but by the, by an image of um, war photographer Don McCullen took it. Oh, the I'm 70s, familiar right? with, yeah, yeah. So, and I remember like kind of talking about that or being really excited about that and talking about that to my friends, my surfing friends and stuff, and they just didn't get it. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like models. Somewhat removed from Somewhat what they were removed. doing. Yeah. I was like physically moved and emotionally moved by the idea that uh, a guy, British guy, went out there, could take images using cameras and technology and all these things that I'd seen kind of in the surf world, in surf magazines, and use it to like make a 17-year-old kind of have these weird kind of feelings about the people in the picture, the feelings for the person that took that image. And the world in general. The world in general. And so that's when that kind of intervention kind of happens. So McCullen was your inspiration, is that McCullen, fair to say? yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. In fact, any of those guys and girls that kind of photographed um, Vietnam. And I think Vietnam is interesting because of its first, or there's a little debate whether or not the first kind of media war was either like the Spanish Revolution in, in 36, or in before, you know, really kind of social social yeah. media kind of war or Vietnam. I think Vietnam with its technology and its news. Well, the fact that it was all televised it was as all well. Televised. Everyone had a TV and they exactly. could tune into this thing yeah, yeah. almost like a bloody series. Exactly. Yeah. And its messaging and its problematic messaging of like the victim and was it, you know, all of the all of the issues around Vietnam as well. And I think for me that period and those type of images, that was like for a 17 year, 18 year old that should be really concerned about kind of working shitty summer jobs and like... Getting his what, end away. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I was just like saving spending all my money on like black and white photography, going out with my uncle on oyster boats out in the bay, kind of fishing, going down to Penzance and Newlyn, hanging out with all these kind of, you know, my experience was shaping up and being really different from my peers at that time that wanted, which were, you know, rightly kind of maybe focused on other things. And that's when that diversion started to happen.
So when McCollins' work struck yeah. a chord with you, a yeah. creative chord with you, how did you put into action actually going out on mm. the front line and starting yeah. to photograph war situations? Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's it's difficult. It's a difficult one, that man. I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think um, it's more more like to do with a state of mind, like a being, like like a. It's, I don't want to sound it like it sounds so douchey to say it, but like a calling. Like when you can, Not when you all, obsess, yeah. when you obsess over something, obsess over learning about a you know, either a conflict that happened 30 years ago or 40 years ago or a photographer researching their work and feeling such a connection to that way of life, that, like, knowing what was kind of required of you if you wanted to do something like that. It requires you kind of, like, donning this armour, this mentality, you know? And so, like, you know, so kind of, like, yeah... Um, going out on fishing boats off, you know, hundreds, two, three hundred miles out in the middle of the Atlantic, you know, spending time with people that you don't know, that you would never normally kind of bump into. I don't make a habit of hanging out at Penzance on the docks at Penzance and hanging out with fishermen, but you have to kind of find a way to bond with people you don't know. So I kind of just, it wasn't it, that, if it's part of the process about trying to get around to answering that question, it's about becoming almost that, uh, not someone else, but it's about um, ingratiating yourselves into the lives of other people and convincing other people that you want to spend the night in their house, eat with their family, sleep in their spare bedroom, for them to relax around you. I'll blend in, don't worry me, don't worry. All of this kind of stuff I was kind of putting into place just in kind of fairly extreme examples of people I was going to say, it's, the, you know, you, it's not like, you know... You picked an extreme yeah, way to do yeah, that. There's yeah. a million ways you could have done that know, yeah. and not put your life on the line. No, That's yeah. what I'm curious. Yeah. How do you make that decision to do pursue yeah. this thing mm -hmm. where you could die? Yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, I was quite yeah. fascinated by the fact that you said something like, you get used to the sound of bullets mm -hmm. whizzing by. And I'm like, mm -hmm. really? Yeah. How is that possible from being on a fish, fishing yeah. boat, doing oysters to having yeah. bullets whizz past yeah. you yeah. and being used to it? Yeah. I, I, you know, that you learn, you learn, you learn really quickly. I don't know. I mean, it does, it, it, it was definitely a gradual process. So from like the first trip away when I was like 21 or 22 to Northern Iraq at that time, that was 2003, but I didn't focus the war so much. I was doing side issues, but just getting yourself to these places. Like that's the first thing you got that's to do. That's a quantum leap straight away. And when you kind of know how to get to a place, know who to ring, who to contact, like these very boring but like very logistical stuff of like, oh, I'm going to be traveling with that guy. That's the car I'm going to be driving in, you know, where to stay, keeping costs low and just like very quickly getting up to speed with the, um, of basically how you're going to do your job, how you're going to get a picture. Because if you can't get from A to B in a car, you can't get from whatever, if you can't travel discreetly or you're making like a complete burk of yourself then you're not going to get what you've basically in some cases put your own money into doing which is always the other thing as well is that a lot of the times for not just me but a large proportion of this industry um of kind of independent yeah photographers documentary photographers photojournalists you often invest your own money first to get to a place and then hope that you have good yeah. contacts and everything but then the getting used to extreme um, environments. So often than not, it's not the bullets that um, are passing. Um, 
it's the general overall atmosphere of chaos. If you haven't experienced uh, violence, death, images of dead bodies, society so often crumbling or just uh, on the verge of collapse or change, um, it can be a really disorientating and scary place to be in because if no one around you knows what's happening, if police have taken off their uniform and blended into things, there is no rule of law. And you're, and most of the time I've spent photographing in the Middle East where I am not from that part of the world. So you have to, and I just found, I don't know, I don't know if it was the surfing thing. I don't know if it was growing up. I don't know if it was being able to kind of take yourself off to go hunting for waves or being cultures you're not familiar with. But I did find a weird, um, um, a weird ability to not be uh, turned off by or um, um, worried, panicked, frightened. by frightened, frightened. Uh, I mean, this might seem by like a, a... violence around, and that was, and that's, unha and that, and that, you know, there's maybe an arc to that, and I think that, and sometimes after like various various instances over the the part of my career today i'd get back and you know kind of brush it off but like when i'm thinking about it or when i'd lie down at night i'd replay certain instances in my head and just go that was not okay to be kind of okay with like you get used to this stuff that, that would yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and you ha and i remember one you know one incident in um in uh, in Egypt, in Cairo, during the first, in the kind of very early days of the Arab revolutions in 2011, where myself and the photographer, for some whatever reason, I'd never been to Egypt before, uh, we kind of got bored by Tahrir Square and the kind of the protest there. And we got off and we went off onto the outskirts of the city, out past the pyramids, to see what it was like away from this media spot of Tahrir Square at the time. And it was, you know, it was, uh, it was different out there. People weren't, were looking in the windows to see who you were. You were not kind of warmly received like you were the visiting press in Tahrir Square. And we drove past kind of an, uh, an army battalion on tanks that were stationed on the side of the road and we saw a bit. And then we'd heard that a supermarket had been looted, like on the outskirts of the city, near the pyramids. So I was just like, oh my God, that's amazing, that's good. And sure enough, it had been looted, there were mannequins and boxes of Nikes like on the floor and stuff and we just started taking pictures and then these uh, this unit this sergeant and these army commanders kind of came running into this deserted mall anyway deserted malls that have been looted by the pyramids anyway are like freaky weird you know so it's those kind of things that are like already taking pictures and then you know initially right right away at gunpoint you know jittery young soldiers you know, pointing guns right in your hand, saying, you know, saying something in Arabic I didn't understand, but they were clearly pissed, really pissed off that I was there taking pictures. He took memory cards out of the cameras, wanted to take all our cameras and, and kit away. And uh, right then they kind of threatened, like, to, to, like, they did, like, a fake execution, you know. What age are you now? I was, like, 25, you know. Yeah. And that was, and that was, like, but even in then, even in as that was happening, and then knowing how Egypt has kind of turned out, and of other really like horrible things of I don't know PhD students going to Mex uh, to Egypt to learn about trade unions, have kind of you know disappeared on the side of the road, being you know killed by the police or something. You know, we just horrible stuff does happen 
and those. And I just, at the time, remember being really chill and talk, trying to talk English to this really pissed off, uh, you know, sergeant in the army that was clearly pissed that we were there showing a side of Egypt that he didn't want to be seen, that he was passionate and a proud Egyptian man. And he was there and these two kind of could have been spies, could have been apostles, who, you know, who knew? And then he kind of, yeah, pulled the trigger and, and, and like, you know, but, uh, you know, and we only were saved by managing to the guy that drove us to kind of get him to kind of come running back down off the into the mall and kind of plead with this general. And obviously there was a there was a hierarchical thing going on there because I always remember the way that the driver greeted this sergeant was he held him by the arm like this to greet, not his hand, didn't touch his hand, like he shook his hand by his arm, and like, and I, I still think about that now, like how. So, you know, so this, this thing of photojournalism, so often it implies that, you know, these men and women kind of parachute into these places that they know nothing about, that they instantly take a type of picture that they think we, Represent the West, the truth, yeah. needs to kind of see. And it so often doesn't involve that nuance and that little thing. And I think about that, that like that. Because it's taken out of context. It's taken completely out of context. And I like, was like, think back to that then and that it's a, a learning experience, a pretty fucking steep learning experience but I do think about that man then how like he sh showed that army general like respect by grabbing his arm and in that moment I think he probably might have like saved our lives basically to go to those situations to commit almost your, your life to it most of the time is that you're making that pact with yourself firmly believing that your pictures what you're doing in some way will make a difference like that's the that's the if you like the overarching theme of photojournalism yeah, since, the, uh, since the camera, the Leica was invented, since it became portable, you know, that by you going to wherever, it doesn't have to be abroad, it could be here, whatever, that you, by photographing and being a non-fiction photographer, a guy that is interested in facts and how other people are, that you are telling someone else's story. So when you go to these places and you see people at their, at, like humanity at its worst, and victims, particularly victims or civilians caught in the middle of this. There's got to be something in you that is either, you know, you're not a doctor, you're not an aid worker, you're that not... justifies your position that in justifies, that situation. So the, the inner kind of strength and personality that you have to have for that, to see these things that you see and, and literally not be able to help, to have that thing that a lot of humans, I hope most humans would have, to see people that are injured or in at the worst that their life can possibly be and to take a picture and that's about all you can offer that that also is a mindset that separates i think a lot of people who can possibly do what we do what was that thing mccullen with the girl on fire where they said oh, did, did, right, you, yeah, did yeah. you take the picture or yeah. did you put her out oh yeah 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 that uh mccullen well mccullen's one was the um the quite famous picture no of the um the albino boy starving in Biafra in the 60s and he was holding out like a cup to McCullen to say like to give him money and McCullen's very faint maybe age maybe or something but McCullen's kind of very well known now for saying that none of his pictures changed the world a jot not one of his pictures could he say or could he quantify to say that that did anything that didn't stop a famine in Biafra that didn't stop this the the monk who sent himself on fire in, in Vietnam to, you know, hundreds of people watching. Um, but that's the thing. And I don't, and I think that there is a kind of 
to change the world. I don't know where that first thing came or like maybe in the UK. We all remember the Ethiopia thing in the 80s, you know, the Michael Burke and BBC. Live Aid, Geldof. Pilger. That's it, yeah. right? Those guys. But for Don, I know for Don to say like it never changed it, but I don't think I was, I never, don't think I ever bought that line. I thought that... He changed the, you. Exactly, right? And he changed by, you know those pictures we're talking about. He raised awareness. And that's how it starts. And that's how it starts. And if to have like somewhere along the line, like photojournalism or I think there was a little bit of corruption there that photojournalism could change the world you know that an image in our history somewhere did change the world did it uh i don't know our perceptions of the world our perceptions maybe. of the world it raised awareness and then it's for other people right it's Just for other a, people take to, that ball to, and run to take with it. It. but that's yeah. how change happens i yeah. think yeah. the idea of changing the world yeah. i mean that's not realistic, but maybe changing one person or your fellow man or the exactly. next door neighbour. And I was that's how you that. push things forward. That's how, like, I that's was kind you... of squared it. It was like, well, if I've just done that job, and that, even if it wasn't in a massive news event or whatever, but if I just showed a story, no matter how big or small, to a person that didn't know that that wasn't happening in that country or those people weren't leaving or doing this, then that's good enough for me. And I thought that that was always kind of like... I thought that was always worthwhile. I thought that was a worthwhile thing to go to other places and tell other people's stories. Like, that was enough. How do you emotionally detach yourself from these situations? How, mm -hmm. how do you do that? Um, I guess you have to, obviously, yeah, you know. Yeah, the cam... I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit cliche, but the camera does help that. If you uh, um, can... It's a black thing you put over your face and it covers your emotions. I've been crying my eyes out at several things, but all behind all behind the camera before. Um, I think it's one of those things that you, that you um, uh, can get lost a little bit and I fall back a little bit in some of the banal technicalities of photography, shutter speed and all of that kind of stuff. It's all linked into, am I doing my job? So if these pictures are blurred or these pictures are out so of focus... So you're saying that's like kind of... It's keeps a, you removed somehow. Keep you removed somehow, exactly. It's like it was like a safety net. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But interestingly, as years have gone on, or since going through some, some of those things when I used to have a camera, I find myself less and less and less holding the camera up uh, to my face anymore. The camera technology has changed. You can look on the back of the camera now and the camera's good. But I find less and less and less of myself holding this camera up to my face. And if anything, I find that actually holding it down or away, or looking the other way, or using much smaller cameras, like almost like touristy yeah. kind of cameras, uh, point and shoot style thing. Um, uh, that's actually kind of changed the way that I move around certain scenes. Did you start with digital, by the way? No, it? I start with film. I start with film. And how so, did that impact what you did? Well, I, I think, mean, I guess thirty-six shots. You got to make yeah, your mind up. That's how I, I just came. If you like, my generation just came in Correct. to digital photography right at the end of, or right at the beginning, where digital photography became affordable to kind of aspiring photographers. So, shooting film was just how I kind of learned. I'm glad I did because that thirty-six frames, basic training, yeah. that basic training of framing of the more often than not actually the contact sheet, the editing of like having to, like, you know, at university or whatever, or, or kind of growing up, of having like, going into the dark room, printing off your contact sheets and having the balls to like, show them. Yeah, and then say that's the one. And say that's, that's the, the one. one. 
and there are all my mistakes. I mean, that's what I liked about film, is that you, you have know? to make your mind up. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But there's also a lot of people now, or when sometimes I teach photography, they hate showing me anything that they don't think is their best shot. But with the contact sheet, you've got your mistakes there. You see how you worked, you see how you were moved around the person, process. your thought process. It's like, kind of, you know, like uh, fucking secondary school when your math teacher would say like, show, you, show your workings, <laughs> right? It's like, that's how the, I got into it. And I think that, you know, th that and also, you know, um, just working like a little bit slower, knowing that you had 36, working, stepping, like a lot of photography, a lot of interaction with people, holding a camera, um, it is kind of like a dance a little bit, right? You absolutely, you have to win their confidence. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You have to win a person's confidence. It's how you move, it's how you hold your camera, it's, you know, sometimes how you crouch, how you stand, how you interact. It's all of that goes into the learning of photography. You just can't hand someone a camera, no matter if they're the, if the best fucking camera in the world, and go and make a picture. It's how you, you know, you know tell you what, what I always found funny you know is that I mean? you put a big camera in front of somebody and yeah. you get one kind of reaction. You put a yeah. tiny camera and yeah. they'll spill their guts. Exactly, right? That's it. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. it. And all of that kind of that um, little experimentation with the format, you know, what's the best for me? The bigger, bigger camera, the smaller camera, how do people change? I think I've never... It's funny, I, I you know, I brought in some books that show you, show you that I kind of inspired by. But I, I used to think, starting out, that... Um, I could do what Don did for, you know, how many years did he do that? A long time, probably his whole, his whole life from his early 20s when he was in like East London photographing like the kind of East End gangsters, you know, before he started all of that stuff, um, to some of the, you know, well-known French or Italian photographers. And they kind of st stuck to the same camera, the same lens for their whole entire career, you know? And that, I was just like, man, that was badass you know like yeah. to be constantly like that committed to to no matter where it is that you're going no matter what country what situation whatever you do that and you take the same type your of weapon of choice your weapon thing for the whole thing and i think that was like yeah there, there was there was an idea of that of becoming so at one like zen with That's your romanticism stuff, right? as well There's romanticism yeah. of like this thing but as I don't know if it's just a time period thing or like the technology or the world we live in now or people or just the nature of, I, I guess, war or revolution that I've seen. It's always provoked in me like a different relationship. It's always made me question like the things that I've seen. And it's always made me question what I'm doing or am I using or is this camera even the best way of, you know? And I've always had these... Maybe like every photographer, maybe will tell you they're kind of racked with kind of anxiety or stuff. Or not it's anxiety or stuff. But like though. you constantly, <laughs> I find myself constantly questioning what is the best way to show you what I've seen. Yeah. You and know? also, you're part in the whole process. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I do feel that. I mean, I, I do feel as though um, I sometimes like I've failed. It seems to me like it's yeah. an absolute requirement that one would have to keep doing that. Yeah, they. I hope. I mean, I hope. I hope they do, and I think that that's there's a lot of debates around photojournalism at the moment, mostly around. Otherwise, you're jaded, aren't you? You are, but then Which is dangerous. It is dangerous, then. But then the jaded, the jaded thing, and those photographers that I mentioned, you know, a lot of them. It's a cliche, but led, you know, kind of had terrible marriages, terrible relationships with loved ones. The kind of the that you makes know some kind of sense right? to me. To be that, like, where photography is the photography is the lover, really, and the wife and the family—that's kind of like the side kind of mistress, where it's like really the the kind of 
being the one that goes out there to tell the truth. Like a lot of the singularity is wrapped up in, in ego and, and, but almost like a, like you believe that it is your divine calling, or calling yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. To, to go there and do that. But I think, but that for my generation, because of the image, because of photography being democratized, if you like, with, with everything, that idea, that notion that a lot of, we, that we still, or parts of it still hold on to, is part of the reason why I think we still, you know, why news is being questioned now about fake news, about all of this kind of stuff, is because, because that authorship of news has been decentralized. And, that, and, and for me, that is like, that's the ultimate question now. For no. me, is how to, to document the world that we live in now. Shit. Sorry, man. It's deep. Yeah. No, I'm not deep, huh? No, it's, it's, it's deep. Deep, huh? deep shit. Yeah, yeah really. Yeah. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. So I guess you spent X amount of time in these war com conflict yeah. situations. Yeah. And then something happens that yeah. changes what you do yeah. and how you do what you do. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's funny. You know, I even, it's, it's something that I can already feel like having a bodily reaction to now. Um, so all of this stuff that we've been talking about so far, I think, kind of leads up to that that point where something that you've obsessed over, that you've sacrificed so much for, you've sacrificed money, you've sacrificed stability, you've sacrificed paying attention to loved ones, to all of that kind of stuff, um, in the pursuit of pursuing your dream, but also pursuing um, a path that, um, that you thought you wanted to go down. And uh, so, Talking about technology, talking about revolutions, all of that kind of thing. Um, 2011, the Arab revolutions. 
was saying this in my mid-twenties at the time. And for me, that moment was a calling. I didn't feel it before with other things that I'd photographed or been to. I had kind of little projects that I had going on and stuff, but the, 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 the winter, the beginning part of the year, January 2011, was for me that calling um, to witness this event, this huge event where technology was being the facilitator in driving yeah, change. Yeah. So my generation, the Facebook social media generation, were using the tools. Mark Zuckerberg is the same age as me. Like he studied, we're like the same age. So he kind of like, he was at university inventing Facebook and I was at university kind of doing this. But, but the, the thing that he'd done, the Facebook, the Twitter kind of thing, was being used to change and topple governments. That's right. I, sorry, you know, go on, yeah. which blew my mind, yeah. which when I thought about what I used it for or what most people in the West used it for, Tell me about right? it. I mean, I tell when people tell me about Facebook yeah. and Twitter and his load of bullets, I'm yeah. like, no. In places like you know the Arab Spring, it was a vital lifeline. It was to bring the people together yeah. and let the rest of the world know what was going exactly. on. Exactly, exactly. And that was it. And that was, you know, I'm not from Egypt. I'm not from North Africa. I don't claim anything like that. But I felt a tangible link to a people, to something linked to technology that I understood, and that was my link into into going. Um, to those countries going through change uh, through the through the revolutions at that point in 2011 that was what drove me there i mean so that's what got me there that was my reason right that was like my reason to go there that i could you know i didn't go to afghanistan i didn't kind of get involved in that i haven't photographed much in the subcontinent in india and pakistan indonesia australia south america but the middle east and the repercussions arguably of, of many kind of you know, foreign policy things in Iraq and, and everything, for our government and the US. Anyway, there was a link there that there was something that I could hold on to and kind of stand by and say, you know what, this is important for me to photograph it. I think I've got a connection. So, yeah, Egypt and, um, you know, funny, you hear, you know, sometimes if photographers in, in various hotel bars or, or uh, you know, kind of clubs here in London stuff, like, talk about the old days and say that was a good war you know that was a good the year war. of living dangerously the year of saying, oh, i remember <laughs> that was a great war right a ridiculous kind of thing but the revolution in egypt at that early point did succeed remember they toppled mubarak they toppled that guy that couldn't be toppled and it was a load of different factors but social media being one of them and i think that during that period in january and february and march i was doing exactly what i wanted to be doing i was working constantly for the Wall Street Journal. I was a bit kind of assigned by them, um, getting front pages, um, seeing things that, um, you know, the other photographers missed, being there at important categories. Interestingly, actually, during that, that, that February and March during the Egyptian Revolution, kind of two or three or four other photographers came to Cairo uh, to work for the Wall Street Journal, but kind of got injured or got beaten up in a protest. There was one guy who got kind of run over by this famous camel stampede when the guys came from the pyramids on the back of camels to Tahrir Square. Um, and That's an embarrassing way to get taken out. It was an embarrassing out. way. It was just this very famous day where I always remember like, looking back and just like this, just hundreds of camels rushing into Tahrir Square because they, those were the guys that were up from the pyramids that supported the government. You know, They didn't want him to go. They didn't already like the loss of business from the thing. And they just 
she just remembers seeing hundreds of camels, like, you know, with guys with whips and, like, things riding into town where they just, like, this, like, medieval, like, <laughs> Braveheart, like, clash. It, it was it was incredible. It was incredible to to see at the time. It was just hectic, but I remember anyway. There's other people, and so by the end of it, it was kind of like there was myself and another person there, and we were the ones kind of left left standing to to photograph the you know the night of February 11th and the the the, the day Mubarak stood down. So I was doing exactly what I wanted to do, and I was getting from and I was working for the for the top people, and so events at that time spiraled. Egypt was no longer kind of, it had its revolution. The next country was, was Libya on the list. And so those, those, uh, the borders opened to, to Libya and Libya was quickly engulfed in a fairly hectic civil war, but this time involving, you know, on a much bigger scale and a much more violent scale than Egypt did. Egypt never really resorted to to weaponizing it. It was always the, the camels, the stones, slingshots, Molotov cocktails, that kind of stuff. Egypt, uh, Libya was, was vastly different from day one. And in, to an extent, Libya was a huge black hole that nobody knew anything about because of Gaddafi for the last 40 years. It was so hard to get anybody get in there and know what the place looked like. It was like this planet for a lot of us that had never seen it. And remember <clears throat> being, in, um, being in Cairo in, in March, thinking about when was the best time to go. The driver that had stepped in and shook the hand of the general drove, asked him again to drive me to Libya with a friend. So you kind of drive up to the top of the coast from Cairo and then head left um, along the Med and then you get to the border with Libya and you, and you step across. And, you know, Libyans, you know, they were a friendly, charismatic bunch. Like, all looked like extras out of a Rambo movie. They weren't, they didn't know what to, how to use it, but they looked amazing, you know, like really good looking, revolutionary, shake of art. Like if you wanted a revolution to go, like Poster that was, boy for the revolution, this they was, was like, was it, they yeah. were then, you know, like with like, just, you know, like kind of Nike Airs, bullets wrapped in crosses over their, you know, chests, army gear raided from like looted depots when like Gaddafi's forces kind of, you know, went home. And for March, and in the six weeks, I photographed the, the unfolding kind of um, revolution on the ground in Libya. But I knew that it was different because communication and internet was hard to, to, to come by. Newspapers and magazines were very reluctant to kind of support um, freelancers there, knowing that there was a lot of danger. It was a war. But at that time, um, you know, you could get yourself, you could file some pictures you know, pictures were getting sold. There was no money. You couldn't take out any money in, in Libya. There was no ATMs. There was nothing. So you were kind of, there was a lot of camaraderie between the photographers and foreign journalists were there, the revolutionaries going through their thing, um, free sandwiches, you know, free use of the internet if you wanted to do it. If you needed some money from somewhere, some other journalist would drive up from Cairo with a bag full of cash and, you know, you would take it there. You would, you know, in, in a way like that, that time, that early part of the, the revolution there of kind of being in this town in Benghazi, driving out with the rebels into the desert in the morning, where inevitably they would run into some Gaddafi kind of people, trained soldiers, 
and then they would just come skirt and running back again all the way like four hours like would just drive by because they didn't know how to fire their guns they didn't know how to like defend the position you know these were kids university kids who'd like you know like picked up a weapon and thought they'd be a revolutionary these this was not a trained thing so but you were much more than a kid but i wasn't like, no exactly yeah. no i didn't know like i'm the kind of i wouldn't be you know but i i i, I think i would know that if you were going to like pick up a gun wrap bullets around your thing yeah you'd... you know right you would like if you were going to go out you <laughs> that maybe far, you might as well a, go the next step exactly yeah. like yeah. dig a trench i don't know yeah. like there wasn't a digs the trench yeah. like make a defense i don't know you know but nothing that never kind of occurred to these guys and so it was just like this almost like from a carry-on film sometimes where like like thousands of people in like kind of Toyota Hiluxes would just pile in every morning after having a coffee and maybe a little bit of a lion, kind of drive out into the desert, see if they could get on, see if NATO planes had kind of bombed some stuff so that they could like move on. The first time a bullet kind of comes whizzing in, they all just like vroom, pile back in. So and they had the look but not the action. They had the look but not the action. And that was kind of Shit. the worry thing because... <laughs> Previously, you know, previously, if you were going to cover a conflict for as long as I've been around, you embed with the military. And when you embed with the US and the British military, your safety is as much as can be guaranteed, yeah. pretty good. You know, uh, you're going to be traveling in good cars with people that know how to fire a gun. And, you know, it's kind of all right. But with these guys, you know, this was the new like this is online, the new generate this new conflict, this new style of conflict that kind of started in the, in the Middle East, this kind of going out into the unknown with people that looked cool as fuck, but could not guarantee your safety, could not plug a wound, could not like do anything. But there was something just so wildly um, optimistic and so wildly kind of infatuating with those people at that time that was hard not to kind of fall in love with it. For a generation like me, who had grown up with an older generation of embeds and tightly secured access, being given the keys to this cave this, this, you know, I don't say Aladdin's game, it's a bit more into this, but like this, this kind of Pandora's box, box of just limitless possibilities. You could be as brave and as stupid as you wanted to and hang out with these guys, um, or you didn't, or you could just kind of, you know, but if you did, you might be rewarded with this amazing access to a country that you know. Anyway, so I was in Libya just going through the, the motions and the advances and the... Retreats. The back and forth and the retreat and the funerals and the death and the dying and the the the, the results of what happens when uh, US planes and UK helicopter gunships, you know, what that does to a body, what that does to, to human community beings. Community and people. Community and I've people. I've always thought that it was funny yeah. when you're TV, when you see these yeah. the, the video shots yeah. of these blo blips going like, yeah. it's like a video game. Yeah, yeah, it is. And yeah. you don't realise it's probably a hundred people just died exactly. in that moment. Yeah, and yeah. It, you yeah. know, it's kind yeah. of... Somewhat obviously removed. Exactly. And we're totally yeah, disconnected from the real impact it of is. what those things are. Yeah. I remember really clearly on one one day as the rebel forces were slowly advancing across the top of Libya, eventually, you know, they, eventually they got to Tripoli, but it was a long push. Of a morning after a, uh, a NATO airstrike on a what seemed like a convoy, could have been of Gaddafi trucks at that point. And, um, and it was still, I think it was still the most. Uh, shocking or violence of, of, of death and of things that, you know, I've kind of ever seen. And, but the thing, the thing that I remember the most about that time, um, and I never included it in my edit of works at that time, was the thing where the Libyan, like, revolutionary forces came out with video cameras and their camera phones and started taking pictures 
of these like horrific mangled corpses of the enemy, right? This anonymous person that was in a tank firing rockets was now suddenly blown to pieces. And they came out with their video cameras with their families, with their young kids, and like stood over this, these piles of corpses and took pictures. And um, I remember seeing it and I remember thinking that that was uh, an amazing thing to see. Like I, you know, I, I just can't, uh, it's a different thing, man. It was just like a little eye opener to the type of perhaps society that had been in there, you know, when you can attach blame to someone for firing a rocket into your neighborhood or whatever, you do as a, as a, as a, you would, maybe you would go and see that. Maybe if that situation reversed in our kind of country. Maybe you would want to see. Well, if you've grown up with it, it something that, relatively normal. I mean, yeah, you know, that's yeah, the trip that you yeah. could actually, young people could actually get used, used to, that. to that. Mind-blowing to me. Mind-blowing. Yeah. Mind-blowing. And uh, anyway, I didn't really make any pictures of that, but it did, it did uh, stay with me. Anyway, so we get to a point where there was a bit of a stalemate. Like, there wasn't enough help from the air, from us, from NATO, and the, the revolutionaries were just crap. Um, but there was one town in the middle of the country, a town called Misrata City. And that city was kind of unique in the fact that it was a rebel-held town that had successfully managed to kind of fend off trained Gaddafi forces. It was completely in the middle, so it didn't have any access to the east of the country, to, to the Egyptian border, to the half of the country that was Gaddafi's forces had long left. It was on its own. So it was like the, the ultimate underdog city, and it kind of quickly got kind of talked about back in the east where I was about like my god this this town Misrata these guys these Misratans they're like these are badasses like these are the people you want to be with right? I'm just hearing and then you decide right? to go there yeah oh my so god then I okay. to go. yeah so okay. <clears throat> um, as you do as you do and then, because it's cut off there's no remember like yeah so there's no ATMs there's no road travel there's no airplanes there's no airports the only way to get into this town is by boat, by heading like out into the med, taking a left and going back into the a besieged town, a town that you know of is surrounded by the enemy with far superior weaponry, artillery. And the chances are that if you get into that town, yeah. you are, might not get out. The, the forces that you're hearing about are holding up a good defence, but if it came to it, they might crumble and then, well, then you're swimming because that's, that's the, only, the only option. Mm. So those are the options. So <laughs> what do you do? Were the options. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so those were the options. Yeah, yeah. And um, it was because, you know, it was because, like I'm saying, I'm in, it's like I'm thinking back to myself at that point now, and it's, and it's almost thinking like I know how much of a different person I was and what a kind of mindset you have to be in where you can square that with yourself to think it's okay. It might be the thing of youth. Youth. Right? It might be that. It I, might be I was that, never right? that crazy, but go right? on, yeah. It might be that. Um, it might be those things that we started off talking about. It might be that, that thing that you know if you're one of the first uh, reporters into that, that you could tell a story that nobody, other, nobody else is, is, is telling a story that you are seeing not, you're seeing something unique now. You're seeing a war that you always, that I always thought I would see from the pages of Don McCullen, from, from Vietnam, from, Gulf, from, from World War II. It was like, and I think, you know, that wasn't just, you know, I, 
I'm sure there's probably maybe other you know people that say aren't oh, that you know they wanted to tell that story, but I tell you everybody is lying if they tell you that there wasn't a part of an excitement, an adrenaline rush. I was just going to ask right? you. I have to ask. It might yeah. sound a bit crass, yeah. but did you get a buzz from it? Yeah, I got a buzz from it. I got a buzz from the small group of photographers that decided to take to take that risk together. Thanks for listening to part one of the season finale of Joining the Dots. Tune into part two and you can listen to the rest of Guy Martin's truly amazing story. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.